0: jeremy uh, our stream is down unfortunately so uh, no one's actually watching us right now but uh, we are audio recording the sermon so if you're listening to this we apologize that uh, you aren't able to watch the service but we still hope by listening that god will encourage us all let me pray and then we'll think about the passage heavenly father we are grateful to you for your word Uh, We come today to uh, one of the most challenging passages, really, in all of the scriptures. And so we need your help, uh, not only to understand, but also to apply it. We pray that uh, through your word, you might strengthen us, encourage us, help us to persevere in our faith as a result of what we hear and read, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've ever made the uh, pilgrimage to Ben and Jerry's ice cream factory in Waterbury, Vermont, you'll perhaps have also taken the few extra steps uh, from the factory up the hill behind it to what Ben and Jerry's call the flavor graveyard. Ice cream flavors, like everything else, the company says, have a beginning and an end. And in the graveyard, they pay tribute to their dearly depinted as you walk around the graveyard, you'll see actual gravestones with the names of these depinted ice creams and a short epitaph. There are, frankly, some flavors there I'd never heard of or tasted before, but there are, were several, are several, whose departure I did indeed grieve over. For example, from 2005 to 2007, Ben and Jerry's made a Dublin mudslide. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot about the kids. <laughs> Story keepers, you you may only have Reagan today, I apologize, (laughs) where was I? 2005 to 2007, uh, Ben & Jerry's made a Dublin mudslide uh, made from Irish cream liqueur ice cream, chocolate chip cookies and coffee fudge swirl, it was as good as it sounds, but alas it only lasted a few years. Here was Dublin Mudsly's epitaph in the flavor graveyard. The bottle is empty, the cup in the glass. Mud with Irish cream was not meant to last. Well, every now and then, I have an image of another graveyard in my mind, something of an imaginary graveyard and one that, about which there's nothing humorous or light-hearted. You might call it the faith graveyard. It's the graveyard which reminds me of friends, mostly still living, whose faith seems to have died. I'm not talking here about those whose Christian lives are a roller coaster of faith. Frankly, that's all of us as we experience something of the uh, three steps forward, one step back in our Christian walk. Now, as I walk through this imaginary graveyard, the names I see are of particular friends and family members who perhaps early in their lives made some sort of Christian profession, but now seem to have no interest in matters of faith at all. I'm reminded in this graveyard of a friend in seminary who, after graduating with his Master in Divinity, divorced his wife and disavowed the faith that he had studied for years and loved for much of his younger years. There are some names I see of people who were hurt by the church or by other Christians and therefore for whom my heart particularly breaks, but for whom tragically that hurt has also resulted in them giving up on God. The faith graveyard are also the names of people in the various churches that I've pastored who seem to be going great guns in their Christian walk and then drifted away until there was really little drift left. Well, in our section of the book of Hebrews today that Jeremy just read for us, we hear the preacher exhort his listeners in the strongest of terms to do what they can to avoid ending up in the faith graveyard. And he's going to do it in three steps. First of all, he's going to confront them, then he's going to warn them, and then he's going to encourage them. And his basic message is this, if you don't listen to God's word, your faith will not grow. In fact, it will die. In the end, as we'll see, the preacher is, is really issuing another call to perseverance, which is a timely message for us in the midst of a pandemic, which I'm guessing has caused some of us to drift from where we were in our faith uh, 12, months fr- 12 months ago or to have grown somewhat deaf to God's word in ways over the last year. The preacher says to us, if you don't listen to God's word, your faith will not grow in fact, it will die. So, first then, the preacher confronts his audience and he confronts them with this assertion You're spiritually immature. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. After this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain uh, since you have become dull of hearing. Sorry, about this, we have much to say. And that about this, refers back to verse 10 that we were looking at last week, where in his discussion about Jesus as the great high priest, the preacher had introduced this uh, theme of of the priesthood of Melchizedek, is about to compare the ministry of Jesus with the ministry of Melchizedek, but he breaks off from that discussion, which we'll see next week, he picks up again in chapter 7, because he says here, it's hard to explain. And it's not hard to explain because it's too complicated or intellectually too challenging for his listeners. No, the preacher says, the reason it's hard to explain is because you lack the desire, you lack the willingness to listen. In other words, they have become dull of hearing. Now, the preacher uses a word here, this word dull, which is only found in two places in the New Testament. One is here, and actually the other one's in our passage too at the very end of it, chapter 6, verse 12, where it's translated sluggish. And you and I know what it is to feel sluggish, don't we? Actually, Tara was texting uh, our daughter Fiona on Thursday asking her how she was doing and this was the exact text that came back, sluggish. All of us know what it is to feel sluggish but notice here that the preacher's talking about a particular kind of sluggishness. He says, you've become sluggish in your ears. It wasn't that the preacher was saying that they were naturally dull or intellectually deficient. He's saying you've become spiritually lazy. You listen with the attentiveness of a slug. Quite a, quite a thing to do there. You, you don't want to listen you know, the preacher's audience here is a, a bit like children playing outside on a warm summer's evening, and you know, the parents call to them, it's finally time to come inside, but they don't want to come in. They want to keep playing, and so they ignore the call. They don't listen. They're sluggish in their hearing. Now, if you've been with us for our earlier sermons in the book of Hebrews, you'll hopefully remember that hearing plays a huge uh, part in this book. In fact, in some ways, this book addresses the question, the fundamental question of how do you know, come to know God? That might be a question that some of us are asking. And for many people, the answer to that question involves human efforts. What we do, you know, you put your thinking cap on, you search, you maybe create a certain ambiance or atmosphere with rituals. You get into a certain mood or create a, have a certain posture, and then you'll be able to come to know God. Book of Hebrews, along with the rest of the Bible, says, No, actually, if you want to know God, you can't start with you and what you do. You'll never come to know God by your own efforts, what you think, what you do. What we need is for God to take the initiative and reveal Himself to us. And the wonderful news that the Bible tells us is that God has done just that. God has spoken to us. Look with me again at chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken to us by his son, the Lord Jesus. If we want to know God, we need to listen, actively listen. And that takes work. Some of you may remember this little booklet that we used to, we've had on occasion on the back table Uh, here at church called listen up a practical guide to listening to sermons and some of you might be thinking really a book on listening i'd say yes a book on listening because all of us are quite adept at listening without listening listening without hearing and as christopher ash who wrote that little book says in the introduction the way we listen is a life or death business The problem for the recipients of this sermon is that they had stopped listening. They were sluggish in their hearing. When I was growing up, my dad, who had grown up in London, would occasionally use the cockney slang term with my sister and me. He'd say, clean out your luggles, which meant clean out your ears, start listening. And that's exactly what the preacher wants his friends to do here. So the preacher continues then his confrontation regarding their spiritual immaturity in verses 12 to 14, where he tells them that their sluggish hearing has kept them in the nursery. Look at those verses with me. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil preacher challenges his friends here with frankly something of a rather grotesque image adult infants who are still nursing he says i wish i could feed you solid food but you're not on solids right now i have to keep feeding you with a bottle And you get this picture of adults in spiritual diapers, sitting around, sucking their proverbial thumbs. It's not that they've never been able to manage solid food. Literally, the preacher says, you have become having need of milk, not solid food. In other words, they'd begun to eat solid food early on, but now they're back on a bottle. At first, these believers had listened attentively to the ABCs of the Christian faith. They'd learned them, at least as well as things can be learned initially. And it really was true learning. However, as the saying goes, you use it or you lose it. And some had lost it. I read this week of a a comedian who brought home this point of our universal ability to forget what we have learned by announcing that he was starting, quote, the five-minute university. What was the idea behind the five-minute university? He said it, it was where you could learn in five minutes everything you will remember five years after graduating from college. And the preacher here is reminding us of something that we saw a few weeks ago, that there is no such thing as a static Christian. You're either moving forward or you're falling back. You're either climbing or you're falling. You're either winning or you're losing. There's no status quo for the Christian. and To be growing, he says, is to be mature, which the preacher states here is to have your powers of discernment so trained by constant practice that you're able to distinguish between good and evil, between right and wrong, between godly and ungodly. In other words, you're putting into practice what you've been taught by God's word. Well, then this first step of confrontation about their spiritual immaturity concludes in chapter 6, 1 to 2. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, And of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Based on what he's just said, the preacher draws the conclusion that his listeners need to really actively now press on to maturity. And here's another one of the preacher's lettuces that we started to see last week. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to to, uh, maturity. When he uses the word leave here, he's not suggesting that they're to abandon the fundamental teachings about Christ. Rather, he wants them to move on from the place where these foundational teachings need to be rehearsed over and over again. These are the ABCs that should never be abandoned, but they should be built upon. They should be the basis and the platform for further growth. And the teacher then lays out six facets of this elementary doctrine of Christ. It's an interesting list, which has often been debated. So if you you or I had been asked to come up with six fundamental truths, six ABCs of the Christian faith, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have looked exactly like this list. And that's because what I think we have here is a, a unique list that was part of a primitive catechism used with Jewish converts to Christianity, The list gives us something of a glimpse of the basics, the foundations these Jews would have been taught before being baptized and brought into the Christian church 2,000 years ago. But the preacher's main exhortation here for them or for us is to build off these things as they move on to maturity. But he says, you're never going to move on to maturity unless you start listening again. And unless you start listening again, you're not going to grow was well, at this point then that the preacher transitions from confronting his friends about their spiritual immaturity to warning them that they're in danger. Look at chapter six, verses four to eight. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Now, if you've ever read this section in Hebrews before, you'll know these are not easy verses at all to get a really good and confident handle on. But whichever way you interpret these verses, they are undoubtedly some of the most sobering words in the Bible, because the preacher here is saying, there is a certain group of people who have fallen away from the Christian faith for whom it is impossible to be restored as Christians. Now, the big question, of course, is, well, who exactly should we understand this group to consist of? There are at least four ways that over the years that question has been answered. There's the hypothetical view, the ordinary view, the actual, and the apparent. I'm briefly going to go through each one of them and then tell you which view makes the most sense to me, but I do so in in humble acknowledgement that there are many fine Christians who hold to one of the other views uh, here first view is that the preacher here is referring to a hypothetical situation that has never actually existed and is therefore a warning against a sin that is impossible to commit. Preacher starts off with the words, it is impossible. Well, in this this particular view, what is also impossible is that people who have experienced what is listed here would actually fall away. The preacher, therefore, is simply laying out a sanctifying what if line of thought. The problem, as far as I can see with this view, is if sin can't actually be committed, it seems rather absurd to offer it as an argument against falling into it. Now, it's a bit like parenting, where you make threats and ultimatums to your children if they don't do what you tell them to do, but the children know from experience that you're never going to carry through on the threat. The threat has no power at all if everyone knows that it's just hypothetical. Second view is the ordinary, that what the preacher is describing here is actually just kind of normal, ordinary backsliding, where Christians slip back in their faith at times, but without actually totally falling away, without losing their salvation. problem, I think, with this view is that, it, that the sanctions described in this section just seem far too severe to me to be simply just talking about basic backsliding. Then the third view is similar to the first in that though the people described here are actual Bona Fide Christians, but that they are they are actually capable of apostasy, of falling away from the faith never to return. The people who hold to this view believe that God supplies a kind of a, a a well of, of grace to those who are trusting him but then it's up to us what we do with that grace and the final perseverance of every Christian every believer depends on them using that grace right that means that some will give up along the way that in some sense those who were, were actual Christians will actually lose their salvation That seems to me to contradict what we read elsewhere in the Bible, and I think several places, but one, for example, where Paul writes to the Philippians that God, who began a good work in them, will bring it to completion. So the fourth view, then, and by your superpowers of deduction, you'll perhaps realize this is the view that I hold to, is is the apparent view. And it's, it's that those described here who fall away We're not actually true believers, but rather men and women who only appear to be. That these would be people who have received a thorough exposure to the gospel, who have made some kind of profession of faith and have been received into the fellowship of God's people. However, at some later point, they've abandoned their profession. They've even become opponents of Christ. I mean, did you notice the graphic language that the preacher uses in verse 6? Those who fall away, as described here, crucify once again the Son of God to their own harm, and they hold him up to contempt. I mean, the the idea that those who re-crucify Christ in this world are not the militant atheists, and they're not the radical jihadists. They are those who actually professed faith at one point, in Christ, but then who have turned away from the living God. Now part of the reason I hold to this fourth interpretation is because I think it actually fits best in the context of the book of Hebrews. Because already the preacher has made a very careful distinction between those who were saved from slavery in Egypt through the Exodus and those who were saved to entrance into the promised land. That is, there was a whole generation of Israelites that we saw back in chapter 3 and 4, who, because of unbelief and disobedience, were saved from, but they were not saved to. And to use the language here of chapter 6, these Israelites had been enlightened. They had shared and tasted the things of God. You go back and you read, as part of the covenant community, these Fallen Israelites had placed blood on their doorposts. They had eaten the Passover lamb. They'd miraculously crossed the Red Sea. They'd observed the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They tasted the miraculous waters at Marah, had eaten daily, daily manna. They'd heard the voice of God at Sinai. But their hearts were hardened in unbelief and they fell away from the living God. And now similarly, preacher saying there are amongst the church to whom he's preaching this those who have been accepted into the covenant community and likewise have experienced something of the spiritual realities but they've tragically fallen away if you want another biblical category into which to place what's being described here this is essentially the same thing as what jesus describes as the blasphemy of the holy spirit in mark three for example it is to come so close to the things of God, to see it as the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and then to turn around and self consciously say, No, that's not God at work, that's the work of Satan. It is to call good evil and evil good. It's a complete reversal of moral categories. The preacher is saying here that if someone, having experienced something of the moral goodness of God in their lives, turns around and calls it evil, they can never be forgot, forgiven because they never want to be forgiven. And that's why, incidentally, if any of us here are hearing this and suddenly are worried that maybe do I fit into the category described here in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, or have I committed the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, by definition, you cannot have done so, because to even be concerned about the sin is proof that you haven't committed it. If you'd committed it, you wouldn't care. But that doesn't mean that this warning isn't a real warning about a real danger, which is still present for us, as long as in the words of chapter 3, an evil heart of unbelief can result in the deserting of the living God. So it's important that we do read this section as we, uh, in context, that we don't remove it from the flow of the argument and, and try to see it as just some kind of theological treatise about The argument of once saved, always saved, which is how many Christians read this passage. No, it's actually part of a bigger argument, a pleading by the preacher to his friends and possibly to some of us to break out of our arrested development spiritually, to start listening again so that we would move towards Christian maturity and avoid a non-reversible trajectory to apostasy. And that's why in the last part of this passage, the preacher moves from confrontation to warning to then encouragement. He encourages them by telling them that he does actually have confidence at this point that they're okay. They haven't yet crossed the line of no return. He's not saying that he's absolutely sure they'll never cross that line. These warnings are sincere, but as he closes, he wants them to be encouraged, ultimately because of a confidence not in themselves but in God. Look at verses 9 to 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I wonder if you notice the shift in tone here. The preacher moves from speaking in the third person to now addressing his listeners directly as you, In the second person calls them beloved, or some translations put dear, dear friends. You know, his tone resonates with the humility of someone who truly wants to communicate clearly, who's delivering a strong message, but he's doing so with with genuine love and concern, like a a caring doctor informing a vulnerable patient that she has cancer. So having warned them, he now encourages them to be confident and to trust the character of God, that if we're saved only by God through the the death and resurrection of Jesus— then our confidence that we're saved, our confidence that we won't fall away but persevere to the finish line has to be based on God and his character. So the preacher says, remember that God is not unjust. God sees that there's been fruit in your Christian lives up to this point, your work, your your love for him as you've served one another. So, So keep putting your confidence in God and who he is his justice, but also his love and his mercy, his kindness, his faithfulness, his grace. Put your confidence in what he's done in his provision of Jesus as your great high priest who's offered up the final sacrifice for our sins in his death so that we can not only be forgiven, but then equipped with the Holy Spirit for the sake of maturity. Put your confidence in what he's able to continue to do enabling you to persevere in faith and obedience so that you do not fall away. And as you continue to put your confidence in God, the preacher says, you'll see things that belong or accompany salvation. In a sense, the accessories to our salvation, things that can give us assurance that we are actively listening and moving towards maturity, that we're on the right track. Preacher mentioned one of those back in chapter 5, verse 12, that we'll be sharing with and teaching others. That doesn't mean necessarily that you'll be up here in the pulpit, but that a sign of growing maturity in your life is that you're able to, and are actually doing it, sharing from God's word to encourage and strengthen other Christians. So each of us should ask, is that actually happening in my life? Here in these verses in chapter 6, he mentions the accessories of active love, of serving one another, of diligence in our Christian lives, and how we earnestly seek to imitate the faith and patience of mature Christians around us. And he says, to the extent that we see these things in our own lives, we should draw huge encouragement. You know, in the end, I, I can't know for sure where those loved ones in my imaginary faith graveyard stand in regard to their relationship with God. And that's a good thing, because it means I should never stop praying for them, that they would return to God, that they wouldn't cross that spiritual point of no return. This passage has been a good reminder to me to ramp up my prayers for many of those people. But ultimately God's bigger concern for me in this passage is to confront me and to warn me and to encourage me as he's confronting and warning and encouraging you today. That if we don't keep listening to God's word or if we don't start listening again to God's word, our faith will not grow. In fact, it will die. And so dearly beloved, Listen up. Clean out your luggles, because your life depends on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear this morning, to actively listen to what you are saying to us, so that we might heed the warning, that we might hear any word of loving confrontation that you bring to us, that we would not be sluggish in our hearing but listen to you, heed your word, persevere in our faith. We pray for loved ones who we think of in our own lives, in our own circles, who have drifted from you, who seem to perhaps have given up the faith, and we pray that you would draw them back to yourself, that you who begin a good work in us would bring it to completion in their lives, however far away they may seem from you at this point. We pray that for family members, for friends, for loved ones, for work colleagues, whoever they are. Help us to commit to be praying for them in the days ahead, knowing that you work through our prayers for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.